Hello and welcome to the ACT 2025 podcast from WRI, looking at climate from the point of view of the most vulnerable countries. I'm Nicholas Walton and in this podcast we're weighing up the outcomes of COP26. I would see it as glass half full. But why half full? And what are the areas where we might now hope to see real progress? On ambition, finance, adaptation, loss and damage and rules in architecture, all these issues are reflected in the Glasgow Climate Pact. Hello. Was COP26 a success? Or was it a failure or something in between? The answer to these questions depends in large part on who's answering. Certainly from the point of view of the people who live in more climate vulnerable countries, the two weeks of negotiations up in Glasgow left a lot to be desired, with the world still firmly off track from beating back the climate crisis. Before COP26 started, we put out a series of ACT 2025 podcasts looking at some of the key issues from these vulnerable countries. Ambition, adaptation, finance, loss and damage and rules. And now the dust has settled, it's time to evaluate where COP26 leaves us all. For the expert view, my WRI colleague Molly Bergen spoke to Preeti Bandari, senior advisor in WRI's Global Climate Programme and our Finance Centre. To my mind, there has been measured progress made. Issues related to uh, keeping temperature increase uh, to 1.5 degrees alive to the extent that countries have agreed to come back in 2022 after revisiting their climate commitments and what they can do more. So that ambition has not been given away, I would say, but it is on the watch list. So that is important. The second important thing is attention to issues that vulnerable countries had brought to the table at COP26, the issues of adaptation to climate change, financing adaptation, loss and damage. Though there may have been some mixed results related to the issue of loss and damage related to climate impacts, but at least some progress has been made. The biggest ask also was uh, on finance overall. We knew coming into COP26 that that 100 billion goal by 2020 was not achieved. But the fact that there is a delivery plan to move towards that and to ensure that this ambition of 100 billion annually would be delivered by 2025 is at least a recognition on how financing is an important element of the trust between developed and developing countries. And the fact that the process has been launched for the new goal on climate finance also is a recognition that financing is going to be the glue between ambition, climate action, adaptation, and the needs of the vulnerable countries. So you mentioned loss and damage, and I know that uh, there was discussion at COP26 of creating this new finance facility that would be dedicated to loss and damage. Uh, In the end, that did not happen, and a lot of climate vulnerable countries were very disappointed with that outcome. Can you explain a little more about what they did agree to do and what steps must be taken next, particularly at COP27, to get us where we need to be on loss and damage? 
The vulnerable countries and the entire group of 77 in China actually was behind this idea of establishing a financing facility for financing loss and damage um, in the vulnerable countries. But I wouldn't say it has completely gone off the table, but that facility was not agreed to. And what has been agreed to is a dialogue to discuss possible financing arrangements for loss and damage. In the interim, uh, one important outcome also uh, at COP26 has been the Santiago Network on Loss and Damage, which was launched at the last COP. It has been provided with more teeth in terms of operationalizing it with clear functions and processes. So in one sense, the technical aspects of the loss and damage issue have been rolled out with the agreement at COP26. But the pending issue, of course, relates to financing not only the technical assistance, but also financing the loss and damages that countries are likely to incur. It's encouraging that at least a dialogue has been agreed to. But again, this dialogue will be very, very important also in maintaining the trust that the vulnerable countries have put in this uh, outcome at Glasgow related to loss and damage. Countries agreed to double adaptation finance, which could amount to 40 billion by 2025 and also made progress on creating this new finance goal which will go into effect after that do you consider these good outcomes compared to the baseline that we were in before going into the cop i think it is a significant outcome the fact that there will be doubling of adaptation finance to 40 billion as you mentioned is a significant outcome but if you compare it to the needs of countries then It is a step in the right direction, but uh, not going the full way. And according to an estimate provided by the UN Environment Program, the investment needs and financing needs of countries uh, on adaptation could be five to ten times higher than what is currently being provided through public financing of adaptation And those estimates are around $20 billion in 2019. So where we need to be compared to that, $40 billion may be inadequate, but compared to where we are, it is a significant move. And apart from that, uh, the recognition that there has to be enhanced access to financing and the processes need to be simplified for countries to access finance, I think, are also encouraging elements. Which high-emitting countries need to do more in 2022 to limit warming as much as possible? Well, it is across the divide of developed and developing countries. It is the major emitters uh, who need to show leadership in uh, not only coming back in 2022 with enhanced um, NDCs, but also in terms of a clear pathway to their net zero pledges that are being made. So the immediate uh, pathway for reducing emissions is important, but also the long-term trajectory so that the goal of 1.5 degrees is in sight. 
In terms of naming the countries, uh, I think everybody knows who those countries are. And I think the onus lies across the board. We're all in it together. If people didn't know those countries, <laughs> would you be comfortable naming a few of them? <laughs> I should, uh, you know, start uh, with the uh, developed countries then. I mean, there have been significant commitments uh, by U.S., uh, how they are going to move forward and what signals are, are they going to provide uh, for those in developing countries uh, to follow suit, to take leadership as well would be important. The fact that U.S. is back uh, on the table is a heartening development, but going beyond the words would be as critical and will be watched closely. In terms of other countries, uh, we did hear at the COP this uh, very exciting development of the support that is going to be provided to South Africa to transition out of coal. So, you know, what kind of support could be provided to other countries like India, Indonesia, Vietnam? to make similar transitions given that uh, they are so-called dependent and uh, they do not have that kind of uh, fiscal space to take action. So what kind of incentives would be given to those countries to really come up to speed and to make those kind of commitments would be equally important. In terms of other countries, yes, uh, we have Brazil and Mexico and let's not forget uh, China and Russia as well. It is the conglomerate of G20 which can really raise the bar on ambition and uh, how Indonesia as the chair of G20 next year uses this opportunity to create that virtuous cycle, I think, is also something important to watch out for. You mentioned a few things that you know have to happen in the next year or so. Is there anything else that you want to highlight that needs to happen very soon? In terms of um, the immediate asks, um, I think that building of trust is very, very important. The Glasgow Climate Pact came through, but, uh, you know, we all saw the last minute drama that was enacted. Yeah. And I'm not only talking about trust uh, related to financing flows or the 100 billion goal, but the trust in that collective endeavor of keeping the temperature uh, rise uh, below or up to 1.5 degrees centigrade. So it is a question also to the big group of G77 and China on how they hold together in this endeavor and within their big grouping, how the different interests and how the needs of the most vulnerable are taken care of while recognizing that the bigger countries in that grouping have their own challenges, even though, you know, they need to step up uh, onto the plate uh, regarding reducing emissions. So trust within groupings, trust across groupings uh, in 2022, I think is important. And the second important thing is whatever gains, uh, whatever measured progress has been made in Glasgow, to what extent do we move with speed, uh, starting uh, implementing some of the guidance? And let's not forget the non-state actors and the private sector, which is also part of the solution. 
and to what extent can they be held accountable to all the commitments that have been made uh, at COP26. Do you think that the overall level of trust that vulnerable countries have for developed countries and for the whole process in general, do you think that level of trust is higher now than before Glasgow or, or the same or lower? I would see it as glass half full. Going uh, by the statement made by the Climate Vulnerable Forum countries after the outcome of uh, COP, I would say that they are still in that trusting mode. They negotiated in good faith and they have compromised. And the statements that were made by you know some of the vulnerable countries at the closing plenary show their disappointment at some of the watering down of the language in the Glasgow Climate Pact, but also they are still hoping and trusting in the process to have made these compromises and not thrown the entire baby out with the bathwater. I would say that the trust still remains. Uh, But uh, the proof of the pudding would be on how the negotiations, you know, start in right earnest in 2022 and how all that has been agreed at Glasgow, how we start seeing signals of actual action being brought to fruition that would build on that baseline trust uh, that they have still shown to the developed countries. How do you envision... Act 2025, you know, being involved in this process moving forward, looking toward COP27? Well, Act 2025 is a very vibrant network of uh, think tanks uh, that brought some very important issues uh, through its call for action on ambition, finance, adaptation, loss and damage, and rules and architecture to COP26. And I think. in an overall assessment of this call for action, uh, we have been very successful in ensuring that all these issues are reflected in the Glasgow Climate Pact. Moving forward uh, to COP27 in Egypt, considering that this COP is going to take place in Africa, the extent to which we can uh, hone in further on the global goal on adaptation, on uh, the technical assistance on loss and damage, and also continue the pressure on ambition of keeping uh, the temperature increased to 1.5 degree uh, would be very important elements of our work program moving forward. But having said that, the framework that Act 2025 provided for COP26 remains robust, and there are certain elements that I just highlighted, which will come to the fore in our work towards COP27. And that was Priti Bandari in conversation with Molly Bergen. If you want to know more about the position of vulnerable countries, I urge you to listen back to the five short Act 2025 podcasts that we put out ahead of COP26. You can also keep up to date with the Act 2025 project at wri.org slash Act 2025. That's all for this podcast and goodbye for now.